0: Welcome to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauck. Today we are coming to you from beautiful downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the Midwestern History Association's annual conference is about to begin. Today we are talking with Bruce Bigelow, a professor of history at Butler University in Indiana. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you. Bruce, you are here uh, in part at this conference to talk about regionalism, and you are gonna deliver a lecture tomorrow morning on the subject of Midwestern regionalism in particular. Can you tell us a little bit about what
1: your talk will emphasize? Um, I basically am using an article uh, by uh, another professor, Uh, Andrew Caton who argued provocatively possibly tongue-in-cheek that the Midwest was not a region but an anti-region and he gave uh, a number of reasons why he believed that in his uh, very interesting article done in 2001 Uh, one of the main points he made was that a true region should have solid precise borders and the Midwest has fuzzy borders on both sides, he argued. Uh, He also argued that the Midwest um, had no formative event, like, say, for New England, the Revolutionary War, or for the South, the Civil War. Uh, He also made the argument that uh, Midwesterners are too nice and placid and Pacific to really stand out in terms of regional culture. In addition to that, he also argued that the Midwest was too complex internally to really be a region because, for example, how is Ohio like North Dakota? Uh, So that was the main thing that he argued. He also finally argued that the Midwest was not a region because it was in the center of the country. And because it wasn't geographically isolated, it was very difficult for it to develop a special character unto itself. So I uh, look at all five of those arguments in my uh, paper uh, and try to argue against each one of the five.
0: And what are your arguments against them?
1: Uh, well, with regard to fuzzy borders, uh, the argument would be that most regions have fuzzy borders. Um, for example, um, when you look at New England, it is Western Connecticut? in New England, given that it's basically uh, suburbs of New York City, which is not part of New England, obviously. Uh, So the argument would be that all regions usually have fuzzy borders. uh, So that doesn't make the Midwest uh, unique. For the South, for example, exactly where do you define where the South ends and the North begins? Obviously along that whole line from the Atlantic all the way to the Mississippi people can differ in terms of What is in the south? For example, is Missouri in the south or the Midwest? Missouri was a slave state uh, and still has significant cultural traditions related to the upland south particularly in the Ozarks uh, who some argue that are simply an extension of the Appalachians. So uh, again, The South has uh, questionable borders in certain areas uh, as the Midwest does. Um, Another argument, Uh, I argue in my uh, paper that there was a formative event for the uh, development of the Midwest as a distinct region, and I point to the Civil War, arguing that the Midwesterners were absolutely critical in winning the Civil War against the South. Uh, The Northeasterners were not doing a very good job at it from 1861 to 1863, and it was only when Midwesterners uh, took over the battle in the East uh, against Robert E. Lee uh, after 1863. I'm talking about Grant and Sherman uh, and Sheridan, who are all Midwesterners, coming East to fight uh, that the uh, North or Union finally won the Civil War. Uh, another argument I make is that, okay, the uh, Midwesterners are nice and Pacific, and uh, but doesn't that make them distinctive? I think that Midwesterners have that feeling that they're distinctive because they're nice and Pacific, particularly when they think about Northeasterners, who most Midwesterners find to be rather rude and loud. And a different regional subculture in america uh so those those are some examples as to how i try to refute Caden's argument
0: well on the question of the civil war um i think uh you're not alone among other historians who have pointed to the civil war as being very crucial to midwestern identity formation and in particular i know some people have argued that uh, during the civil war Uh, some of the boundaries that may have been a little fuzzy prior to the war, say southern Illinois, southern Ohio, et cetera, all of a sudden became very clear because the lines were drawn. Do you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. And I think you're probably mainly thinking of Clifford Phillips' book, The Rivers uh, Ran Backward, where Professor Phillips of the University of Cincinnati argues that there was a middle border that included what we now think of as the Lower Midwest, and the Upper South, where uh, the cultural uh, attitudes were not all that different from one another. Uh, In fact, when the Civil War broke out, there were many uh, people in uh, what is now the Southern Midwest, Southern Indiana, Southern Illinois, even Southern Ohio, who were uh, pro-Southern. And now they are referred to as copperheads or snakes, because They were considered to be traitors against the Union uh, effort under Lincoln to uh, win the Civil War. So, uh, yes, uh, Cliff Phillips' new book is particularly one that uh, makes that argument.
0: And uh, tomorrow, when the Midwestern History Association Conference kicks off, uh, the first panel, or in the first round of panels, you will be speaking with Professor Phillips, and uh, a few other professors on this question of regionalism. And we hope uh, that that session uh, will be taped uh, and be available on YouTube. And hopefully it will be available as part of this podcast too. Um, Bruce, I wanted to talk a little bit about your education. Uh, You come out of this very strong tradition of cultural or historical geography. And in fact, you studied with two of the giants of cultural geography, uh, Donald Meinig and Wilbur Zelinsky. Can you tell us about those men and how they uh, influenced your thinking?
1: Uh, yes, uh, I quite by accident discovered Donald or D.W. Meinig when I was an undergraduate at Syracuse uh, in the early 1960s. Uh, I, as a junior, decided to become a high school history teacher, um, as I kept changing my major the first few years I was at Syracuse, and uh, because I was in uh, high school history uh, program, I was required to take a course called Cultural Geography uh, from a Professor Meinig. always have loved geography, I've always loved maps, but I wasn't aware until then that it actually was a discipline that was taught at university level. Uh, and so I was particularly excited to hope that I would find someone who had similar views of the world and ways of understanding the world as me. And I was blown over by D.W. Meinik, who uh, was a very elegant lecturer In those days, we had lectures, not uh, discussions. And uh, uh, he would use these beautiful German maps to explain the various cultural regions of the world from a historical and cultural point of view. So I immediately said, uh, I want to take as many courses from this man as I can before I graduate. And so I went on to take uh, political geography uh, from him as an undergraduate as well. Uh, I went away for a master's de- degree at Penn State, mainly because I just wanted to change the scenery. I'd been at Syracuse four years and wanted a new campus. And lo and behold, uh, I met Wilbur Zielinski and Pierce Lewis at Penn State in the late 1960s. Uh, Wilbur Zielinski uh, has written an incredible number of articles and books on the cultural geography Uh, mainly of the United States from a historical point of view. And uh, so Wilbur uh, was a great influence, too. And also Pierce Lewis, who is less well-known, but uh, did a number of articles and a couple books on what he called cultural landscape. And uh, the study of the landscape, where you read the landscape to understand the people that lived there, was an interesting point of view that I hadn't thought of before. And uh, he particularly was good at doing field work and taking students on field trips, uh, getting them out of the classroom to look at the cultural landscape of uh, central Pennsylvania and even areas further away than that from the Penn State campus. And then um, after teaching with a master's degree in Baltimore for two years, I went back to Syracuse To study with Dr. Meinig for my PhD uh, because I thought he was uh, the real giant in historical cultural geography. Uh, The others were great too, but he was particularly one I wanted to study with and he's known particularly for his magnificent four-volume historical geography of the United States uh, that was published by Yale University Press called The Shaping of America. Uh, which uh, is an incredible work done by him. But in addition to those four books, he also has published uh, roughly five or six others as well uh, on other topics related to historical geography. Uh, So I was very fortunate in sort of finding Don uh, very circuitously, and uh, he became basically my lifelong mentor Uh, He's still alive, 92 years old, living in his house near the campus of Syracuse today. And every time I go back to Vermont, where I grew up, I stop and take Dr. Meinig out to uh, dinner and have a good chat with him about uh, things going on in the world. But uh, uh, I'm sure there are other uh, scholars uh, and students who can particularly think of one person that really shaped the way they understand the world and were an inspiration to them. And for me, it was D.W. Meinig.
0: How do these cultural geographers, such as D.W. Meinig, Wilbur Zielinski, Pierce Lewis, and some others we've talked about, like John Fraser Hart, how do these cultural geographers explain or talk about the development and settlement of the Midwest?
1: Um. They look at the development of the Midwest from a point of view of uh, migrations of particular cultural groups into the Midwest. So when we look at the Midwest, uh, I'm thinking particularly of Zelensky and Meinick, They would emphasize the uh, latitudinal migrations from the East Coast into the Midwest. Uh, The furthest north would be the Yankees or New Englanders. And they shape the upper Midwest, particularly, of course, along with. Scandinavian and German settlers that came in directly from Europe later. Uh, In the middle part of the Midwest, they would emphasize uh, what I would call Midlanders or Pennsylvanians, people of the Pennsylvania culture region that move westward into the central part of the Midwest. Uh, Particularly um, with Pennsylvanians, we're talking about uh, Pennsylvania Germans Uh, These were Germans who were in America as early as 1700, and uh, so had been there long before the American Revolution. Uh, Sometimes they call the Pennsylvania Dutch, but they're really Deutsch or German. And they've been very important in uh, settling the Midwest with their various uh, uh, pietist Protestant groups, eight of them I find in Indiana that I am studying with another scholar who is a specialist on pietism coming out of Germany in the 1600s from Heidelberg University. Uh, there also were significant Scots-Irish coming out of uh, Pennsylvania going westward as well. And then further south in the Midwest, you have people coming up from basically the upland uh, or border south with southern traditions. Uh, but usually, these were not people that owned slaves. Uh, they were a folk from the countryside, from the hills, who uh, were sort of middle class or lower middle class farmers, uh, not necessarily involved in commercial agriculture, uh, not the planters from the deep south, but uh, upland southerners. And I think today you can go into the Midwest um, and uh, go from north to south and still see a distinct difference between uh, those regions, particularly politically. Just think of how Minnesota is so different from Indiana in terms of politics. Well, Minnesota was settled by Yankees, also very liberal Scandinavians and German Catholics and Lutherans. Whereas Indiana, uh, the majority of the people that settled in Indiana in the 19th century were from the border South, not just Southern Indiana, but Central Indiana as well, only Northern Indiana was settled mainly by Pennsylvanians. That's why you have the Amish Mennonites, other Germanic groups there that came out of Pennsylvania. So uh, even today, I mean, Indiana and Minnesota are very different and it goes back to these roots.
0: In terms of your uh, rebuttal of Andrew Caton and making the case for the uniqueness of the Midwest, doesn't what you just explained sort of make your case? Because the Midwest is highly mixed. Vermont Yankees, uh, Pennsylvania Germans, Quakers, Scandinavians, as you said, come in, Scotch-Irish, it's a highly mixed region. Unlike places like New England, which uh, some people have traced um, you know the main families of New England back to 300 people in East Anglia, England. And then, of course, in the South, you have um, you know the, the the planter class, which is you know a very unique but specific class. But it's not diverse at all. Mm-hmm. And doesn't that make the doesn't that make your case that the Midwest is highly unique?
1: Uh, yeah, highly unique, but also uh, internally very complex because these groups all have a certain turf or geographical area that they dominate. So uh, on the one hand, yes, it makes them very unique from regions around them. But also you can see why Caton would argue that, well, how can you call this huge 12-state area, the Midwest, a culture region if there's so much incredible diversity from one part of it to another, which is one of the arguments uh, that he makes. Uh, again, you know, North Dakota is quite different from Ohio. Minnesota is quite different from Indiana. So you can cut it either way, I guess. But certainly the Midwest, um, you know, what would you expect in a huge area that's 12 states and arguably parts of other states as well? Of course, there's going to be complexity. Uh, Nonetheless, when you uh, compare it to the Northeast, the South and the Far West, it seems to me that the Middle West has certain distinctive traits that make it different significantly from the other three huge cultural regions.
0: Bruce, uh, you um, are very much invested in and know a great deal about the field of cultural or historical geography, given the mentors you've had and the people you study with. Um, How would you assess the health of the field of cultural geography?
1: Uh, I would say that uh, the field of historical and cultural geography today is in great jeopardy uh, in the geography departments in the united states today there's a turn towards um, environmental impact studies um, urban planning studies and particularly gis or using computers for mapping uh, Now, I wouldn't want to denigrate any of those three fields, but they have now precluded in professional geography a healthy uh, department which would have historical cultural geography anymore. So I uh, would argue that if you want to see cultural historical geography studies, you're probably going to have to look at historians who appreciate the geographical perspective, appreciate the use of maps in terms of making their arguments, and also talking about uh, how the environment may have affected certain groups uh, in certain regions.
0: Why has uh, historical geography fallen on hard times? Or why don't geography departments put more emphasis on this? Uh,
1: that's an interesting uh, question. and. I don't know if I absolutely understand, but I think that geography has now become a practical discipline, more than one that is involved in uh, unique, distinct uh, research that you associate with history and cultural studies. Uh, so, obviously. Environmental studies, you'll have many jobs for that. Uh, urban planning, there are many jobs for that. And GIS, which is particularly grown strongly, there are many jobs for those uh, fields. Uh, so I think it's more pragmatics than anything else. Uh, because urban ge- uh, ge- excuse me, geography has always been a discipline that's sort of on the edge in American academia. It hasn't had the prestige that history uh, or even anthropology, particularly lately, or even sociology has had uh, in uh, liberal arts uh, colleges. And I think that uh, that may be part why they are now moving to something more practical where they can make an argument that they should exist as a separate department uh, because they have these fields they train students in who can get lucrative jobs once they get their degree.
0: We are talking today with Bruce Bigelow. He is a professor of history at Butler University. Uh, We are coming to you from the Midwestern History Association annual meeting being held this year in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Uh, Bruce, you've taught at Butler University for 37 years, and you teach a course on Midwestern history. Can you tell us how you developed that course and the background story of the development of that course?
1: Yes, it, uh, at first, uh, it was not a Midwest history course. Uh, George Guy now retired, uh, a prominent, uh, historian at Butler who taught there for 49 years and also was involved very strongly in state politics with the Central Indiana Committee of the Republican Party. Um, taught a course, on Indiana history. He was a native of Indiana, which I am not. I'm from Vermont. And uh, he also was very much involved in Indiana politics. So I think it came natural to him uh, he started teaching at Butler way back in 1965, when Butler was probably 75% Indiana students. Uh, when I uh, had a chance to teach Indiana history when, after George retired a few years ago, uh, the student body at Butler was gradually changing to becoming more regional than uh, based upon one state. And today at Butler, about 60 or 60 plus percent of our students are not from indiana which i think is a very healthy thing for various reasons Uh, many of them are from what i would call chicagoland which means uh, the city of chicago but particularly the suburbs of chicago the northern and western suburbs Uh, and they are not particularly interested in taking a course called indiana history because chicagoans would be looking upon that as being uh, something that might not be of their interest. Uh, They do have an attitude that, obviously, Chicago is much more important than Indianapolis, for example, as a major city uh, in the Midwest. So Indiana history sounds to them to be uh, terribly provincial. So I very quickly uh, transformed the course from Indiana history to American Midwest history. Uh, First it was called Indiana History, then it was called Indiana in the Midwest, and then finally, uh, just a few years ago, I just said, we're going to call it American Midwest History, and uh, stressed the discussion of the entire 12-state region. However, I have to confess that being in Indiana means that I probably do more on Indiana history in the course than I do, let's say, North Dakota history because I know so much more about Indiana than I do about North Dakota. Uh, So uh, that's one of the problems with a Midwest history course. You've got a 12 state region, yet the instructor probably is involved in one sub-region of those 12 states, which he knows much better than the rest. So how do you possibly teach a Midwest history course that is balanced geographically for the entire huge area? That is a problem in teaching. The course, I gradually try to add more things that aren't from Indiana, but nonetheless, if you looked at my syllabus, you would still say, well, you're doing a lot on Indiana. If not Indiana, then Illinois and Ohio. Uh, Where's your South Dakota material? Uh, Where's your Minnesota material? And it wouldn't be as strong. Indiana is unique.
0: Uh, in the med- in the Midwest in the sense that it is uh, it has been called the most southern Midwestern state And uh, I would guess it probably has the fewest number of Yankees uh, in comparison to states like Michigan and Minnesota, which has a much higher number of immigrants from the northeastern quadrant. I mean can you sense that in Indiana? Do you feel the differences there between a place like Michigan?
1: Oh, yes. Yes, I do. I think when I think of it, it mainly comes to me in terms of politics. Indiana has a tradition of being a very conservative state. It's now very strongly Republican, although at one point it was more balanced between Republicans and Democrats. We're talking about going back to the 1930s to find that. Um, And uh, if you think of the major politicians that come from Indiana that have... Uh, people would know nationwide, they tend to be quite conservative. Uh, Dan Quayle, for example, our present uh, vice president, uh, serving under Donald Trump, uh, is quite conservative. uh, He was as governor. Um, And uh, Wendell Wilkie was, uh, well, not as conservative as the two I just mentioned, but he was relatively conservative, say relative to uh the roosevelts um so yes i I think i sense it most in terms of uh politics
0: uh you teach courses or have done a lot of research i guess on the civil war in indiana can you tell us the various strands of that research
1: yeah i've done uh, some articles on uh civil war politics mainly a sort of political and Uh, social or cultural history. I'm not interested, when I teach a course on the Civil War, as I do, uh, in emphasizing the battles, and at least not emphasizing them strongly. Although, of course, I discuss the battles. We even read novels about Gettysburg, for example. But my main interest in looking at the Civil War is looking at the politics uh, of the period of the 1850s uh, obviously the 1860s, and even the 1870s with Reconstruction. So uh, I do voting analysis by mapping election returns by counties in Indiana. There are 92 counties, so you get quite a difference, say, from north to south, uh, looking at the 92 counties, Uh, and uh, doing a biography of uh, the major politicians in Indiana in the Civil War era. Um, so that's the way I hook into the Civil War's uh, electoral geography, particularly.
0: What about the Germans who migrated into Indiana? What about your work in that area?
1: Um, well, I'm working on an article now uh, with Steve O'Malley, who is at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. Uh, Steve is a native of Indiana. Uh, but he went to Yale Divinity School and uh, is a specialist on German pietism uh, coming out of Heidelberg, uh, the University of Heidelberg in Western Germany in the 1600s, which influenced the groups that came from mainly Western Germany to colonial Pennsylvania in the early 1700s, where they were escaping usually for political reasons or to some degree also for economic reasons to go into Uh, liberal Pennsylvania under William Penn, who sold land uh, to these uh, people and gave them religious freedom. Eight specific uh, Protestant groups, including, for example, the Mennonites and the Amish, the Church of the Brethren, uh, and uh, five other groups. So they they are very different from Southerners, and they're very different from New England Yankees in terms of their cultural tradition. And Steve and I are uh, doing an article which argues that the Pennsylvania Germans are as important to the cultural heritage of Indiana as the Yankees and the Southerners. Yankees and Southerners are usually emphasized because we think of Indiana in terms of Civil War history, and they were the two that were clashing, North versus Southern Indiana. But the Pennsylvania Germans were critically important too in creating what Indiana is today. Just visit northern northern Indiana, and you'll see a number of Mennonite churches, Am- Amish farms, Amish carriages on the, on the, on the roads. Uh, and you know that that is a very unique tradition uh, you didn't get from the New Englanders or the Southerners.
0: <clears throat> In addition to your course on Midwestern history, what else do you teach at Butler?
1: Um, Well, Midwest history, civil war, Um, I also uh, have created a course for the uh, social studies ed majors uh, called world history, uh, where in 14 weeks, I go from the big bang to the present moment. So it's a a very demanding course to be able to teach. Um, I also teach uh, cultural geography regions of the world for particularly for social studies ed majors, but others as well. I am um, I had taught a course called American Empire, which looks at American foreign policy since World War II. And now I've been asked for, from the department head to broaden that out uh, so it isn't so narrow. And she wants me to do something broader, so I'm doing a course called Comparative Empires uh, this fall, where I'm gonna compare The American, the Russian, and the Chinese empires, uh, particularly in the 20th century, but with a uh, historical component in understanding each of those three peoples and their imperial ambitions. You have been listening
0: to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauck. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Today, we are joined by Bruce Bigelow, a professor of history for 37 years at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. Thank you, Bruce, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.